When you know what you want for the future, you need the present to line up with your goals. UCF Online offers more than 100 fully online programs in healthcare, engineering, criminal justice, and more. So you can get to your future and beyond. From the University of Central Florida's Center for Distributed Learning, I'm Kelvin Thompson. And I am Tom Cavanaugh. And you are listening to TopCast, the teaching online podcast. You, you put extra pauses in there. Is that to get people to lean into the, into the microphone, or I'm sorry, to the headphones? I just thought it was maybe the Shatner version. <laughs> okay. You never know. Yeah. I read here. We'll go off on one of our crazy <laughs> tangents. I, um, I read an interview one time with, um, I think it was the editor of um, Rosemary's Baby. Mm. And um, I think it was Roman Polanski who directed that. So he's the cinematographer, the editor. And there's a scene where somebody's on the phone in a bedroom and the shot is sort of down the hallway into the, into the bedroom, but you can't quite see the person. You can only just see sort of like the edge of their body and their head. And um, the editor was like, we can't use that shot. It doesn't even like show the subject. And Polanski insisted. And then he said when he went to the theater and watched it, everybody was leaning over huh. to try to see into the oh, room. Oh, that's funny. And he realized he knew exactly what he was doing. He was doing it on purpose to try to draw you in. Uh-huh, and, uh-huh. and that's what I think you're doing with your pauses. People are leaning in and trying to say, what? what what's, what's he going to say next? That's right. If only people were that attuned to what what gibberish might possibly come out of my mouth. And, and let's be clear, I'm not at all comparing the subject of Rosemary's, Rosemary's Baby, Baby to, to the top cast. Thank you. You know, I don't know that I actually saw that movie, but, you know, it, here certain things are in the zeitgeist, right? And it's like... Still, you say Rosemary's Babies and I get uh, baby and I get creeped out. Oh, me too. Yeah, like, yeah. Rosemary, I don't know no, if I've no, ever no, seen no, that no, movie no, either. Nope, not watching it. Nope, nope, not seeing that. Yeah, so. I think I've seen that that shot just because of that that thing I read. But oh. film school, yeah, film school. They're my my film school showing. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that is apropos of nothing. Mm-hmm. You know what is apropos of something? What's that? Coffee. Coffee goes with everything, including pauses in intros and. Um, and completely non sequitur stories. Uh-huh. So what? I was, I'm still stuck back on, wouldn't that be a good name for a podcast? Apropos of nothing. Non sequitur stories. Uh, b- <laughs> both of which, you know, okay, spinoffs, you know. Yeah. Listeners, go ahead and write into us and tell us which of these you would like to hear us <laughs> turn into yeah. a complete spinoff podcast. Instead of the teaching online podcast, it'll be the something else. Yeah, um, I guess. Sure. Yeah. You want to know what this coffee is? I do. All right. Yeah. So um, this, Tom, uh, as I'm drinking out of my SMU mug, is a coffee I picked up uh, in Tejas uh, when I was at uh, the OLC Innovate 2022 conference. It's actually from a Houston roaster called oh. Cat's Coffee. And this is, you undoubtedly but you were noticed. in Dallas. I was in Dallas, okay. but this is from a Houston roaster, yes. Gotcha. Sorry, thank you. But SMU. Yes, SMU exactly. Dallas. Yeah. Um, did I tell you Veronica Diaz said to say hello? Oh. 
Hi, Veronica. Right, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I keep forgetting to tell you. Um, she's living there too now. Huh? Dallas, all the finest people are. Yeah. But this coffee does not come from Dallas. It comes from Houston, okay. uh, from Cat's Coffee. And um, it's, you might have noticed, a flavored coffee. It's called mm-hmm. Texas Chocolate Mudslide. Yeah, I did notice flavor. It's good. Yeah, I didn't, uh, you know, I'm not a big, I know, big flavored person, but it was something nice. Family picked it up while while we were there, but it's tasty. But I I thought that uh, because this cat's coffee place, they have this slogan, and it says, um, check in my notes here. <laughs> Good coffee is more than just taste. Good coffee is more than just taste. And they go on on their website to talk about, of course, all the uh, fair trade, you know, and and work with the farmers, and mm. and they. Uh, donate like a percentage, you know, of every pound of coffee to some charitable foundations that are aligned with their company's mission. And then they go on and they kind of have this whole thing about their their community um, that they've built within their their employees. And, they're, you know, they make sure you click on every person's picture so you find out about them. And, and they have this whole vibe, right? Mm-hmm. Good coffee is more than just taste. So I thought... You know, there's something there connected to today's episode, I think. But what do you think? Hmm. What do I think? So, <laughs> I think you should go back to Texas there, buddy. <laughs> so as I usually say, well, I know what I'm drinking now. <laughs> and I, I I know what the subject is that we're talking about uh-huh. today. So good coffee is is more than just taste. Mm-hmm. Um I, I don't know. Colin. That's right. That's 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 okay. I like it, that's that expression. Yeah, it's nice, right? Yeah, it's good. So you know, it it's kind of broad. I just thought that um, it kind of cue, touch cues up and connects into uh, aspirational values and societal impact. It kind of brings that up, even though we're talking about something as mundane as coffee. Good coffee is more than just taste, and yet you can still have societal impact. And I thought. You know, there's some there's some vibe there. I think with today's interview that we're gonna feature. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. So tell us, what are we gonna happen today, there, Tom? <laughs> well, we uh, we have an interview, and um, it's one that I conducted a, a couple of weeks ago. And would you like me to introduce our guest, or would you like to introduce our guest? Okay, I'll, I'll do that part. Um, I guess that was that was like, hey, Kelvin, do your job. Uh, <laughs> so you did interview Anya Kamenetz, uh, and no doubt, I'm certain that many of our listeners would be familiar with Anya Kamenetz. She's uh, currently an award-winning education correspondent at NPR, and she was previously a staff writer at Fast Company magazines, contributed pieces to many other prestigious publications. And Anya is the author of several books, notably, and discussed briefly in your conversation, DIYU, EduPunks, Edupreneurs, and the Coming Transformation of Higher Education. Her most recent book, as we record this, is The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. And it's currently available for pre-order. Is there anything you want to say about the interview and kind of the connection 
between the coffee bit and, and, <laughs> and the interview now that you've heard yeah. aspirational values and yeah. societal impact? Yeah, definitely. Uh, certainly societal impact. And that's kind of where we start the interview mm-hmm. um, with with uh, kind of a reflection on COVID and what, what COVID has sort of wrought through the education system. And, and we tend to be um, you know, very much focused on higher education. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, Con- Anya's reporting has has covered also, you know, the K-12 space very, you know, heavily. Um, and, and we sort of start there, but we don't we don't stay there. Uh, mm-hmm. We talk mm-hmm. about a couple of other things. Um, I've been a- acquainted with her for a, for a while um, and, and have had the opportunity to interact with her in a few times. And I just, I just find her really thoughtful. And her reporting um, seems to really understand the the education space. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I, I appreciated her perspective. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you. Whenever I've heard her before, I'm like, okay, here's somebody who, who kind of gets it, yeah. gets us. That's good. Well, through the technological marvel that is modern podcast time travel, here is your interview with Anya Kamenetz. So, Anya, thank you so much for being on TopCast. Oh, thanks for having me. So, um, a lot of areas we could go and talk about, um, you know, specifically around around your reporting work in, in education. But I thought I might start with the, the, the topic du jour, which is um, COVID and the, the impact of the pandemic on education. Um, you know, we've we've seen impact here at the university uh, on students. You know, there's a lot of mental health challenges. There's been a lot of um, growth in online learning, and uh, students who have been exposed to digital tools, faculty who've been exposed to digital tools. Uh, there there are a lot of a lot of multi. Uh, uh, multivariable impacts that have been on students over the past two years. And, and I wonder if you could just maybe comment on, on what you've seen in your reporting, what you've, what you've observed in talking to students and to parents. Absolutely. Um, and obviously, we've all been immersed in this for the last couple of years. I think from the higher education perspective, it might be interesting to think about this in terms of what a university education provides which are things like a sense of meaning and purpose, discovery, and a sense of community. And these are all the basic needs that were so disrupted by the pandemic. We lost that sense of certainty and control over our lives and our futures. We lost a sense of community that you know campuses provide, that families try to provide. Um, and so it's exactly, I mean, the reason I think it's useful to think about it that way is to say, first of all, you know, Um, we've never been in a better position to understand how mental health is not an individual stigma, but in fact, it's a public health issue that's affected by um, things in the environment. And that is uh, a good thing in terms of how we talk about mental health and how we address it. Um, I also think it's, it's useful to frame it this way in terms of a loss of meaning, purpose, identity, planning, um, community, because those are the things that we're in a position that university educators are in a position to supply and replenish as we move forward. Yeah, thank you. Um, Specifically around kind of the focus of our podcast, which is digital learning, um, 
How do you think student expectations have changed around online and, and digital learning? And, and let me give you at least my own personal bias here to frame the question that uh, I, I've been uh, kind of railing against what I've called the great conflation of emergency remote instruction and intentionally designed high quality online, mostly asynchronous learning. And you know, there have been a lot of people who have conflated those two things and, and I, I think that that's still maybe out there, but you can't control other people's perceptions. So I wonder, you know, given your vantage, um, what have you seen? What have you heard from students when it comes to their perceptions, opinions of online learning? You know, given the fact that maybe the first time they've ever even taken an online class was during this emergency remote instruction period. Sure. So um, obviously we share this um, this bias and this interest as somebody who's been looking at the evolution of online learning um, <clears throat> for and, and sort of predicting a huge transition for more than a decade. It, you know, it's kind of a moment where you say, well, I didn't want it to happen this way. You know, this right, is the- right. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the fact is that when you talk to te- parent, uh, sorry, the fact is that when you talk to students about their experiences with remote learning during the pandemic, um, you're going to hear a lot of negatives, and that is because it was an emergency situation, and uh, these courses were not thoughtfully designed to be online, and for the most part, and students weren't prepared to be online students. Um, Nor did so, they choose to be. You know, they they chose face to face, and they got forced into online. They chose face to face, and they got forced into online learning. That's exactly right. So, you know, we heard a lot about disengagement. We heard a lot about I just can't do remote. Um, I'm not the type of person who can do remote. People kind of personalized it, catastrophized it. Um, You did see those bright spots. I recall kind of talking to, um, so there were some, I don't know if you remember this, but there were some lawsuits early on where people were saying, you know, my tuition's not worth what it it was um, and I don't want to pay this. And I talked to a law school professor at a pretty elite school and she was like, I don't think these lawsuits are going to go anywhere because I hold my seminars online and they're fine. Um, so there's certainly a level of, and this is part of the polarization of higher education where, um, the perception is not always immediate, um, for people, especially at, I mean, not to stereotype elite institutions, but if you have folks who are used to kind of either lecturing or holding a small discussion section and they, they just transfer that into the online space and they have very motivated students with a lot of support at home who are very, um, adept, they may not perceive much loss in the transition to online. Um, where students that, uh, you know, really need innovative teaching um, to in order to succeed didn't always get that. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, and I wonder if, if, um, if you've observed or heard, or maybe it's even still kind of early, uh, from students who are making that transition from high school to college and what their expectations for remote or online learning are you know if if all you know about online learning is is your junior and senior year of high school being on on Zoom and then you come into a university and you're offered an online option you might say no way but that that may not be at all what what is being offered um, so do, do students have expectations that are that are informed by the the pandemic as they're coming into the into a, a post secondary uh, context. Oh, I think they definitely will. Um, and, and it's going to vary a lot by the student. Um, you know, there definitely are students who 
are uh, thinking differently about the type of institution they want to apply to. Some are saying, I mean, we've seen a polarization again. Obviously, there's a drop off in overall the applications, and then there are some institutions that are being you know sort of winner take all. They're getting more applications, even as other institutions are dropping. And so, part of that might be, well, I can go anywhere. You know, geography is not as much of an issue because I can always go remote. Um, or I can live at home. So, so the expectation that remote will be there and that, you know, the barriers of time and space are going to be lowered for me is one set of expectations. And then you have almost the reverse set of expectations, which is students that missed out on two years of milestones and experiences may want that enhanced learning. Um, and we have seen recently, my colleague at NPR, um, Alyssa Nadworny, has reported that there's an uptick in trade um, trade school applications um, where people are really seeking that hands-on learning, um, which is sort of precisely what you can't get online. Yeah, that's interesting. You, you mentioned um, you know, students who have those supports at home. And one of the things that sort of came into high relief during the pandemic is the digital divide. Uh, it seemed to be more exacerbated in the K-12 space than in the higher ed space, but certainly it was, it was evident here in the higher ed space. And I wonder if um, if we will see improvements because of the light that's been shown on the digital divide through the the, the COVID experience, and if if there are maybe net benefits to come out of this, such as like a democratization of, of learning that becomes more accessible to students, you know, provided that they've got the, the bandwidth and maybe the supports at home. But I mean, that's a big topic we could probably spend a lot of time talking about, but I wonder if you could just sort of touch on that digital divide question. So on a baseline, there was a huge growth in uh, families with kids in school getting laptops, getting connectivity, and the school seeing itself as the conduit to supply them. And so as the American Rescue Plan funds continue to flow, um, they're reporting that there's significant money continuing to be spent on laptops and, and connectivity. So schools don't just see this as a one-time um, you know, necessity to provide, but they're saying, oh, this is now part of our duty to provide. And it's part of the basic learning tools. And um, coming along with that is an uptick in the use of online learning, software-based learning practice, and those types of things. So um, I think just as a default, yes, we've accelerated the transition to having technology supplemented K-12. Um, uh, that's whether or not that ends up being a net benefit for learning, you and I both know, is I know it's not a done deal, right? It's going to depend on how these things are applied. And I think that, you know, there's there's kind of controversial things in the works, um, such as, uh, you know, in order to remediate the learning that was missed, uh, one of the recommended actions is to have supplemental tutoring, but there's a huge crunch in personnel in schools. And so some schools are spending that money for AI-based tutoring programs. And those are not, you know, those vary in quality and they vary in application. And there are some families who are like, are you kidding me? My kid didn't learn to read in online kindergarten and now you're giving them online first grade um, to try to learn. So, you know, again, I think the gap that, that we're seeing is in the, you know, not just innovation, but, but actually quality control and actually evaluating outcomes and seeing what really does work and understanding, of course, it's not a one size fits all. Yeah, and I mean, if anything, we've learned over the past 25 years of, of ed tech or maybe longer, it's that just throwing technology at something doesn't solve a problem. There's there's process. And, you're, and it's interesting you're, you're, you know, you're talking about pedagogy in the context of digital divide because it just sort of reinforces that, that truth <laughs> that we've all learned. 
Let me say it a little louder for the people in the back because we seem to <laughs> not remember it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, you did also kind of talk about how um, some students may not be applying right now because uh, they've got these other these other options. The, you know, they can they can do some things online or they can they can, um, you know, kind of create their own education in many ways, which which harkens back to, to one of your early books, the DIYU. And um, I, I've been fascinated by that that concept um, since, since I've heard that concept and since uh, since I read that book when it first came out. And um, I, I wonder if that continues. Um, do, do you think that this this idea of and maybe I should define it for the for the listeners that yeah. DIYU is is and tell me if I get this wrong on you. Um, it's the idea that that students can kind of self-construct their own education through a variety of like open and other tools such as Khan Academies and YouTube and MOOCs and other kinds of things. And you can put together the education you want without going through any sort of formal formal institution. Is that close? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, thank you. You know, I feel like uh, this DIYU concept has almost become a victim of its own success because it has really percolated into um, the mainstream in a way where people just kind of assume that they're going to be able to teach themselves things. Um, but the, you know, the key part about democratization of education is that, you know, yes, you have people learning Greek philosophy, but you also have an awful lot of people who want to know how to unclog a drain or, you know, deliver a baby or grow mushrooms or whatever it is that they're, they're just interested in, right? And so I want to share a finding um, from Common Sense Media, which is always good at kind of portraying the full range of young people's media use. And they found in a survey of 12 to 17 year olds during the pandemic, 78% said they used media to learn about a personal interest. And 53% said they pursued a creative interest online. That would include things like um, shooting and editing a video, my daughter got into animation, writing fan fiction, composing music. So these are the kinds of learning uses of, um, of the machine and the connectivity that, are, that really are all around us. Um, and they manifest in so many different ways that I think um, are worth lifting up and celebrating, um, even if they don't always approach this idea of, you know, you're going to have an iPod playlist that will turn into a bachelor's degree, which was kind of our our early concept. Right. Yeah. Well, hey, I mean, that, that really resonates with me. I can't tell you the number of times that like, I needed to fix something like, I don't know, my pool cleaner or like you said, kind of unclock a drain or you know, change a car filter or something. The first place I go is YouTube. And I always find the answer there. And it always teaches me how to do it. It's amazing. You know, people argue about, mis people talk about misinformation and disinformation, but YouTube is the biggest open learning platform on the planet. And how to is the biggest search on YouTube. It's one of the biggest searches on Google. And the fascinating thing about it is that, I mean, some of those channels are monetized, right? People are making money by giving information online. But there's just an awful lot of people who are like, I want to share what I learned and I want you to know about it. Yeah, it's great. Thank goodness for, for, uh, for YouTube. So, um, maybe, uh, as a, as a last question and to kind of conclude, if you have any advice for our listening audience who are mostly online learning professionals, a lot of instructional designers, online learning administrators, some faculty on, um, you know, kind of based on your conversations with students and parents and others, especially in a, in a post-secondary higher ed context, you know, what would you say that, that they should know? Um, everybody's been through 
one of the most challenging parts of their lives. Um, the the lucky thing about being an educator is that you are a meaning maker and you are tasked with helping other people, especially young people, decide what their future is going to be. And we are at a uniquely challenging moment in history. And I think as instructional designers, you have this skill to take ideas and information and turn them into knowledge. And um, I just want to say that it's a really great time to be doing that. And I hope that everybody who's listening gets the rest that they need to recharge and reframe this work because it's really, really important. Yeah, thank you. That We have heard that loud and clear <laughs> from our own team here as well as from others across the country. So that's great advice. So Anya, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us on, on TopCast. Thanks for reaching out. It was fun. Well, Tom, that was your interview with Anya Kamenetz. It was, yeah, and I really appreciated her uh, taking the time to talk to us and kind of share that perspective um, on COVID, on YouTube, on, Mm -hmm. you know, DIYU, all kinds of, all kinds of stuff. No, it's good stuff. I, I was, uh, I've listened to it a couple times and I listened to it again today um, before we zoomed in here and I was kind of loading up everything, what I'm going to listen for. And I was struck with the bookended uh, big picture kind of stuff. You know, she, when you started the conversation, she started with like big ideas and when you said, Hey, any advice? And it was again, big ideas. And I really appreciate somebody who can hold on to some Big ideas and make them <laughs> make them real. You know? Yeah, well, when you're a national education reporter, I think you kind of have to look at the bigger picture sometimes, um, which which she does. But she's also not afraid to lean into individual stories too, which mm-hmm. which you know she also does. Yeah, yeah. I, but you know, just to kind of state the obvious, um, COVID had impact, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in and in many ways is still impacting um, yeah. the the. In some places, it's not over, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, everybody is sort of dealing with it in different ways, and um, and it's been it's been tough on on the educational system as a whole, from K through mm-hmm. twenty, whatever. Yeah, no, that's that's true. I I, I was thinking, uh, in listening to it, that it it made me think of a couple of touch points with earlier Topcast episodes. Um, like our episode number 98, which was, I don't ever want to do online again, our interview with Ryan Rogers, high school guidance counselor, who oh, kind yeah. of talked about, you know, uh, as Anya does, kind of like, what what happens if this has been your experience and then you come into college? I think you you set up that, that scenario. And that's a good, you know, kind of delving into there. And then way back in field report number two, Topcast episode number 65, do you remember we did this? <laughs> preparing for the post-COVID future. We were so naive. Uh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Field report number two. Well, let's go ahead and think about how the future is going to play out. Yeah, I guess we're still <laughs> figuring that out. I remember doing an interview with, with Beth McMurtry from the Chronicle of Higher Ed um, just as we were going remote mm-hmm. and saying, well, you know, the Board of Governors says just two weeks. Sure. So, yeah, it's a pain, but we'll be able yeah. to just absorb this for two sure. weeks. Yeah. Well, I think to your point, right, I, I think that – and we touched on this back in that episode 65 as I skimmed through the transcript um, earlier today. We touched on it that there's – as you just alluded to, there's 
potential long-term ripple effects, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, even beyond the immediate, whenever like COVID clears out of your particular area or or where it's very low transmissibility or whatever, the – just the, the human experience and the, you know, we talked about this uh, many times before of like you don't know what the lasting impact is is really going to be in yeah. the long term. But yeah. but I think it's probably good to check in periodically and go, okay, or how are we how are we making sense of all of this? Yeah, and, and Anya and I talked touched on that a little bit when we talked about the kind of the the spike in in mental health services yes, that have been required yes, by yes, by yes. students across the spectrum. I thought that was good. Um, you know, that's been a growing need anyway. Mm-hmm. That was only, I think, accelerated and exacerbated by by COVID. Between anxiety about your health to isolation, you know, all, all of the things that get that got wrapped up into into the COVID gumbo, you know, for lack of a better metaphor. Um, that, That's visual. Yeah, <laughs> that um, it it just really impacted a lot of people, and and mm-hmm. I think that we would be remiss not to recognize that and and try to put the proper, you know, services in place to, yeah. to address it. Well, I mean, I, I really appreciate her framing as uh, mental health as public health, she mm-hmm. said. Mm-hmm. And uh, that then that's exacerbated, exacerbated by things in the environment, which also makes me think of um, there's this Tea for Teaching podcast episode I, I tell everybody about. It's, uh, I think the title is Workplace Burnout. And um, they bring in one of their deans who's a psychologist who summarizes the workplace burnout literature, um, spearheaded by a researcher named Maslach, who's now retired. Uh, and just fascinating because uh, it's framed as a workplace phenomenon. It's mm-hmm. not just like your problem or your problem. You know, it's it's all of our problem, right? So similar kind of a concept. Yeah, know? yeah. Yeah, another um, area we touched on was, you know, digital divide, which mm-hmm. I think was was greater in the K-12 space than higher mm-hmm. ed, but still present. And then, um, you know, I, I want to make sure we, we touch on this. It gets a little away from COVID, but this idea of DIYU, mm-hmm. that was when I first was introduced yeah. to her work. I remember when, I, when the book came out. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, th- I really thought she was on to something, still, still am, because yeah. you, you can see that happening, mm-hmm. where especially with the rise of, of – um, you know, MOOCs and yep. certificates and companies saying that they no longer necessarily even require a bachelor's degree. I think mm-hmm. Google has said that mm-hmm. now, um, that that you can compile your own education. Mm-hmm. Um, you just may not have it regionally accredited, right? Mm-hmm. But you may have all the knowledge that mm-hmm. you need. And that's that's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you tie that together with phrases that are, that are wafted about a, a lot lately, like skills gap and micro-credential or micro-learning yep. and and it's potentially a potentially a thing but I I was struck by you know you two both spoke about the YouTube video to know where to turn the screw and you know yeah. what to connect or whatever and as you and I were talking right before hitting record our now retired uh, former CIO here at UCF Joel Hartman <laughs> I, many a meeting I've heard him talk about well you know with good training helps you deal with surprises. But the difference between training and education is with education, try not to be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you teach people how to think, right? That's, That's right. the difference. Yeah. Bigger, bigger thing yeah. than a YouTube video, but still, still a thing. With Still a thing, but also, you know, with free MOOCs, mm-hmm. you can get into some of that. Yeah. Other. It's not just how do I change my air filter in my car, which is how I mostly use yes, YouTube. right. 
<laughs> but um, but for like really you know deeper subjects that require more of that kind of analysis and critical higher up on Bloom's taxonomy. Yeah, um, yeah I, I think I think it's a thing, and you know, and there's there's I was at the Upsia conference recently, and there was talk a lot of talk about the sixty year curriculum, and hmm. you know we're not it's not four years get a bachelor's degree and you're done. Right. It's like mm-hmm. a continuous lifelong learning right. where you go in and out of education, right. different kinds, formal and informal, to keep yourself relevant, to change careers, to advance, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It's a real thing. No, it's that's good. And I, I really liked um, Anya sort of started here and ended here. You asked her about advice and she said, because uh, I like this quote so much, I'm just going to throw it in. Uh, she said, You're, you are a meaning maker speaking to members of our audience. You dear listener, are a meaning maker, and you are tasked with helping other people decide what their future is going to be. I love that. Yeah, I do too. And I think she's absolutely right. Uh, I've heard other people say that um, where education, or no, I should say information, information is available. The sum total of human knowledge is in my phone <laughs> right now, right? That's pretty remarkable. Okay. So if that's available, if information is available to everybody, what, what value does faculty, mm-hmm. does a faculty member bring? Mm-hmm. Well, they bring a curation yeah. and a meaning making, yeah. you know, to the information that's available. What's important? Why is it important? What's connected to what? It's that expertise. And that's kind of, I think, what Anya's getting at there and being a meaning maker. Yeah, I love it. Well, you want to try to wrap this puppy up? Sure. So um, I think we would all agree that the long-term impacts of the Mm COVID-19 disruption to higher ed are definitely still being assessed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Continuing to check in from a high-level perspective uh, is important to make sense of what has occurred and to ensure that we are moving toward our intended future. Mm-hmm. What do we want the future to be? Mm-hmm. So can I can I squeeze in a plug? Sure. Squeeze away. So folks, listening audience, if you like Topcast, tell a colleague mm-hmm. and invite them to watch or listen because you can watch mm-hmm. or listen. <laughs> and subscribe. Smash that like button. Isn't that what they say? Smashed. I like that. Sounds painful. A podcasting app. We're on all the podcasting apps. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, newsletter, uh, YouTube, mm-hmm. or um, on our website where you can get all of the awesome show notes and links. And if you want to buy this coffee and all of that other stuff, yeah, it's at topcast.online.ucf.edu. We don't get any coffee kickbacks or anything. It's just a, no, we just a listener service. And, you know, here's a secret, secret thing. Oh, we're going to tell everybody now. If you just wait for 10 minutes after it looks like we're done with this recording, we show you how to change the air filter in your car. That's not true at all. But wouldn't that be cool? We should link to some YouTube video. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, I, I, that's a good plug. And uh, do please spread the word about TopCast. We hope it's, uh, it's useful to you. Let us know uh, anything you'd like to see more of or less of. Uh, and until next time for TopCast, I'm Kelvin. And I'm Tom. See ya. See ya.